This is the Saxo Market Call, the daily financial markets podcast across asset classes and around the world. Hello and welcome to the Saxo Market Call. It is Thursday, 2nd of March, 2023. Markets getting hit yesterday uh, by uh, after session. The Tesla damp squib this investor day was really a disappointment for Tesla shareholders hoping for the coming of a new world order or whatever they were hoping for. The actual cash session was was pretty lackluster as well, and but that we did sort of manage to close above the 200-day moving average or almost right on it in the case of the cash index a bit confusing as we always show the future on our slide too, but we've slipped below. But the key thing being that we've overnight slipped to new lows. And I don't think any coincidence here as well that we're seeing the 10-year, for example, the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield uh, slipping above 4%. It sort of cl- it tested it yesterday and and sort of you know, closed around 3.99%, but the, it is rising higher still overnight. Uh, a lot of the upside pressure in yields I feel like is being, I don't feel like it is being driven by these hot inflation figures in Europe, and we'll get to more on that in a moment. But um, yeah, uh, the energy looking quite negative. Uh, Europe is opening poorly here this morning, Peter, and and it's just not a very pretty picture. It is not a very pretty pretty picture, although you would think so if you look at the team baskets overview. But that's because, as you said, it, the the price reaction came in the after the price reaction we talk about right now. We down zero point seven percent in the S and P five hundred futures. Came after the the cash close, and then we'll get back to. The Tesla story because that was uh, that was very uninteresting. Um, and as you said, we have to break out in the U.S. ten-year yield. <clears throat> it very much is following the script that I had in my mind. You know, this discussion about structural inflation again, much higher than what the market and central bankers are expecting. It's it's you know reverberating through the bond market. We're seeing uh, yields being recal- uh, recalibrated, and I think the thirty-nine hundred ish level is definitely in play now on the S&P 500. It would be, I mean, I, I think psychologically that is the level we're pushing for now in the S&P 500 and it could it could go there uh, pretty quickly. On, on slide three in today's slide deck, I've put in the um, our US equity drawdowns chart, which tracks or shows the eight uh, longest and worst equity market drawdowns since 1928 and the very uh, thick blue line there, the dark blue line, is the current one that started in basically on January 1st uh, of last year. So we we now, you know, we're now 14 months into this drawdown. It's becoming one of the longest drawdowns in uh, We have one, two, three, four, five. We have five drawdowns. So now this is the sixth longest drawdown. Um, and uh, we, we, we almost down 20%. I, I don't see anything right now with the, with the next phase coming with your potential margin pressure, structural inflation, etc. I don't know what you're thinking, John, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we could push this to maybe be the fourth or the third uh, longest drawdown before this ends. It could even be longer. Um, and the, I think Stan mentioned in our internal call this idea that you know, the, the, the concept of time, that the longer you have been in a specific environment, the longer the adjustment period and transition out of that period and into something else. <clears throat> and that, given that we have been in this very, very long, long cycle of globalization and 10-year cycle of, of, of low interest rates and digitalization, this transition to the physical world and all the things that need to be built in order to deal and expand the supply side, get uh, inflation under control is, is a lengthy process. And in that, in that transition period, uh, equities will be, uh, will be roughly. Um, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but I don't know what you're thinking, John. 
Well, you've, you've brought in some pretty big topics into the picture. I would, I would say two things, <laughs> two things here. Uh, first on that chart, if we look at where those uh, previous drawdowns terminate, they terminate at the lows because that's when you stop drawing uh, the drawdown. So it's, it's the point to the ultimate low of that cycle. And so far, the ultimate low of this cycle was quite some time back. I'm forgetting now. I think it was early November or early December, something like that. Uh, so we would have to make a new low for this to have then become the whatever longest uh, drawdown uh, for the cycle. Uh, that That's largely irrelevant, I think. Uh, the, the other point is, and I think it's more relevant, is we could even have an S&P that sort of drags around uh, in sideways to even slightly upward fashion, but doesn't continue to post the types of new highs that it has in so many cycles in the, the last uh, 40 years prior to this cycle of interest rates. Uh, in which the real value of the index is, is sort of dragging around, as it did from the, let's call it mid-50s to the late 70s. I mean, you know, the 1982, for example, low in the market, of course, that's not including dividends, and that's a crime because dividends were a very significant part of uh, returns, especially in the 70s and early 80s. But the nominal S&P index was at a 28-year low in inflation-adjusted terms. So there's there's the real level, and then there's the nominal level. Uh, so uh, just a couple of things to add to that, that uh, but still very interesting perspective on where we are on this drawdown. I think I want to uh, switch forward to the next slide and talk a little bit about uh, what's kind of interesting here is not just the uh, the 10-year, for example, in the U.S. Uh, pricing uh, or rising above 4%. It is a critical level, the the even bigger level, the, the highest of the cycle, just above four and a quarter percent But just looking at how the structure of the Fed expectations has changed, and I think that's really important as we're heading into this FOMC meeting later this month on the 22nd. So we've seen, uh, and the chart there on the left on slide four is showing the series of three-month interest rate contracts from the uh, June one of this year out to the December one of 2024. And you can see they're all sort of swimming in the same direction. But some of the bigger moves being in reducing the number of cuts that is seen uh, or, or where the cycle is seen as we get into late 2024, which uh, sort of was all the way down to 3%, even slightly below what the market was, which is what the market was expecting as we headed into 2025 uh, back in uh, as recently as January. And now that has been pre uh, repriced to above 4%. So those, those rate cuts are getting uh, reduced and reduced rapidly. It's not just about the terminal rate being raised uh, modestly uh, here and there. And, and now we've hit as high as 5.5%. It's also about where the, um, uh, the, the, you know, the, the scale of the rate cuts. Uh, still, though, still, and the, the thick red line there is showing the differential between the December 2023 and the December 2024 contracts. It's still within range. So we're still looking at the market pricing in 135 basis points from early 2024 into early 2025. To my mind, that is the critical one to see uh, reduced to something like 100 basis points or maybe even 75 basis points as we roll forward in the next three to six months. But the, maybe the Fed doesn't freak out and start hiking 50 basis points now, but maybe the market starts to accept that the Fed is going to get perhaps to five, five and a half, five and three quarters, who knows, even 6%, but it's not necessarily going to be chopping uh, 150 basis points or 125 basis points to 150 basis points uh, over the following 15 months. So that dot plot at the 2020, uh, March 22nd FOMC meeting will be quite interesting. And we're in the process of the market getting a little bit unsettled on this front. Okay, with that long spiel, uh, perhaps excessively so, just wanted to um, uh, put in that. And I think at the moment, the, it's the European uh, uh, inflation data points that are really dragging the U.S. market quite around quite a bit, although we did see an ISM uh, manufacturing prices paid above 50 yesterday. It was quite a, a bit higher than expected. 
And then small small note here, we, we got the you know the huge China PMI official PMI data points uh, pointing to a uh, you know a massive recovery supposedly within China. Uh, some might throw some some shade or, or skepticism on official Chinese data. And I would like to see, for example, the March data at least start to pick up more hef, uh, heavily in something like South Korea, an economy highly uh, leveraged to to China, as you can see on slide five. Uh, 30% of its exports going to either China, mainland China or Hong Kong. And um, the year-on-year industrial production was was down at a very ugly level in January. And the February uh, PMI, manufacturing PMI in South Korea, was at 48.5. So I obviously would like to see some other uh, regional uh, confirmation of that. But let's get over to you, um, Ulu, because we have the China reopening story. We've talked about it quite a bit yesterday. Uh, not a tremendous follow-through just yet in commodities. No, exactly. Uh, we we had a, an initial uh, pop higher across the board, uh, both the industrial metals, but also the the oil market, and uh, the market is still just uh, very reluctant to uh, to to jump on any any uh, any strong case in either direction at this point, and uh, that's probably quite natural because we're still in a. Uh, treading water here, the market worry on one hand about uh, growth, recession, high interest rates, and uh, on the other hand, uh, trying to focus on the the pickup in China, and and that pickup in China is real. Saudi Aramco, uh, obviously the world's one of the world's largest producers, uh, saying yeah, I was out was out saying yesterday they're seeing very strong oil demand coming in from China. They're also seeing a US, EU and uh, US demand bumping along quite nicely. So um, so that that underpins the. A lot of the the talks that we've seen at the, uh, the International Energy Week in London this uh, this past week, uh, where a lot of commentators are basically looking for for tightness later in the year, and uh, I just put in two uh, two charts yesterday from the uh, weekly inventory report from the U.S. and we just saw a massive jump in crude oil exports and just highlights that that the WTI right now is relatively cheap uh, because it's in a, in a, in contango as you can see on the small inserts on the chart there the prompt spread is in trading negative territory that basically means uh, that they are just basically pushing out as much oil as they can because there's no there's no gains from having it in storage so uh, so a lot of oil is pushed out and that's going uh, that's that's basically helping as well to alleviate some of the pressures that's coming from uh, from from uh, from the pressure on Russia right now, but overall we we have to uh, stick to what uh, OPEC uh, the IEA is looking for, and that is a pickup in oil demand as we move in deeper into the year. And if that is uh, if that's going to come to fruition, then then uh, the, the market is likely to well will stay uh, supported here in in the low 80s in Brent. And uh, in the down towards that seventy five in WTI, and we're looking for an initial or an eventual break to the to the upside. Also, um, the uh, there's just one report out saying that the Kepler one uh, they're tracking ships. They're seeing a, a big jump in demand for U.S. oil heading to China in in March. So um, so that's uh, so obviously U.S. oil is is more expensive than Russian. So um, they are buying with uh, uh, buying quite aggressively right now. Staying on the commodity space, just want to highlight copper as well in, on slide eight because it is it is just one uh, market which is uh, I'll say will attract a lot of attention in the coming years and one many look towards as a as an investment case. Uh, there was um, I'm, I'm, we had a colleague attending a, a big uh, seminar in, in in Copenhagen yesterday and. Um, and uh, I, I just need to double check the numbers, but uh, in in theory, something like uh, the, the all the mined copper we've seen in in history, uh, the same amount has to be found over the next twenty, let's say twenty thirty years, in order for the green transformation to be successful. 
that is obviously putting a lot of strain on, on copper miners and and obviously with that they need higher prices in order to to be ensure that it continue to to dig copper out of the ground and we, we already know now that the some miners are struggling with below ore grade uh, we have uh, worries about production in south america in peru and so on in the short term at least so um but uh, even in the very short term and that's also what i highlight in the report i sent out yesterday it is a patience game because while while the uh, while we've been waiting for the expected pickup in China, producers have reacted. To, uh, they've been building up inventories. We see that on the monitored warehouse stocks, both in London, Shanghai, and and New York, especially in Shanghai. And that basically means that we've seen that the these inventories are now at the highest level since mid mid last year's uh, mid. Um, or, or in the second half of 2021, so um, so they they need to be brought down, and we need to see that real demand start to pick up. So um, so I think for now it's a patient game. Just uh, watch out for that 420 level and on the chart that potentially could trigger some additional technical buying. But uh, so far we're holding below. Let's roll back to the FX slide on slide six. A couple of interesting stories hitting the market yesterday, in particular the Bank of England Governor Bailey out with comments. Uh, very non-committal on whether they even are going to continue tightening. This is very poorly uh, for sterling relative to the euro, where there is a galloping sense that the ECB is is behind after these latest uh, February inflation prints for this week. Germany adding to that sense yesterday with some hot inflation prints, 0.8% on the headline month-on-month uh, versus 0.5 expected, and it takes the year-on-year to 87 and the so-called EU harmonized at 1% month-on-month, 9.3%. Uh, year on year. And we get the Eurozone CPI uh, data points this morning, including a core print where it's expected to match the cycle high at 5.3%. That'll be out probably before the vast majority of our listeners have, have managed to even listen in. So so stay tuned to that one as well. will be key for the Euro. Look at Euro Sterling uh, there on slide six, bouncing back from a hey, one month or so low uh, as we had the sense of uh, perhaps the UK economy is, is going to do f- or fare better than expected. And on that Brexit deal announcement uh, on Northern Ireland, and then it just uh, reverses that and then rips all the way almost to 89 because of the Bank of England comments. So uh, that's just taking the whole knock the stuffing out of the potential for it to descend back into the range, at least right, right now. And you notice on the FX uh, board, the trending measures that the euro is, is almost matching the dollar now with its uh, recent strength. We have the yen continuing to struggle with these higher yields as we're still awaiting better signals of normalization from Bank of Japan. And the uh, the Aussie are looking quite uh, quite weak given the China reopening narrative, and that's a real disappointment. Do note that there was a building approvals number out of Australia, absolutely terrible, and at a 10-year low. So that's the, uh, you know, the interest rates working into the uh, prospects for the real estate sector there. Uh, so plenty to track in FX at the moment. And again, with the U.S. 10-year uh, above 4%, if you get a bit more of the, uh, the the U.S. yields providing a bit more of the leadership there, uh, taking over the baton from Europe, you might have a bit more uh, dollar strength in a relative sense across the board. And all the time, we're going to have to wait for some shock, random shock out of the Bank of Japan, March 10th, that big Bank of Japan last Kuroda meeting uh, coming up next week. All right, Peter, if you haven't fallen asleep listening to me and uh, Ola in our uh, asset classes, let's have a back, uh, look back at what's going on in equities and especially, well, not especially because it was it was actually really boring. That Tesla Investor Day, uh, really a damn squib again for, for, that, uh, for that stock. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I wasn't falling asleep. I was actually thinking more about this whole industrial production chart you had, uh, and early in, early in the podcast on the slide deck. Um, you know, if you have high inflation, which we've seen as well from Nestle and Unilever, you have actually seen production volume going down, also volume going through, uh, like company like Home Depot in the U.S., etc. is actually negative. So you could actually have the situation where industrial production or manufacturing output in volume terms is negative, but then when you multiply with the inflation, you in, in nominal terms, you still have a, a growth in the value of industrial production or manufacturing. Just some thoughts there. I haven't thought it uh, through more. But yeah, Tesla, let's talk about Tesla. For uh, all the showman he is, uh, Elon Musk, there was not a lot of show yesterday. Or there was a big show, but there was nothing really to show for. Uh, shares were down five percent. It was uh, the uh, the investor day was as boring as his boring company boring holes in the ground uh, trying to push cars through uh, those holes. Um, not really anything to be excited about. The only meaningful news had already been leaked. They're building a, a new plant in Mexico to expand production. They're working on a new affordable EV on a new platform. No specific details. And then he said, oh, we need to have a lot of renewable energy um, without sacrificing economics in that production. And then they didn't flesh out any more details except saying, uh, we'll get back with a more detailed plan on that later. Okay, that was it. Shares down 5%. Uh, the more exciting sideshow was in Salesforce shares because Salesforce shares were up 16% in extended trading. Elliot comment, uh, the activist investor Elliot Management was out saying after the uh, after the announcement where the outlook for the year exceeded expectations both in revenue and EBITDA and, and Elliot was out saying that some of the what what was shown in the outlook and the results also in the in the in the quarter that ended was that it was in it was consistent with what they had recommended Salesforce to do and they had had extended talks back and forth on what it will um what salesforce should do as a company so it seems like salesforce here has uh, has turned a corner as you can see on the uh, share price chart on slide nine very ho horrible price performance there in, in the end of q4 of last year and we've come 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 some way and and in extended trading we got very close to the 200 dollars per share mark so that would be a significant improvement for salesforce snowflake another technology company that reported after the close yesterday shares were down 6% as companies maybe are waking up to the reality that cloud spending is not always a cheap solution, at least not in, 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 in all cases. And cloud spending is for surely slowing down, at least relative to the expectations. We have to keep in mind that Snowflake is still growing the top line at 50% year a year uh, as of the last uh, quarter. But their guidance for the fiscal year on revenue re relative to where analysts were Analyst estimates were uh, disappointed and the shares were down 6%. So, and if we look ahead today, we have had results from CRH, which is a European uh, and Irish-based building materials company. They're actually saying they're going to, to move their listing from Ireland to the US. So they're shifting their primary listing. That's a big move. But otherwise, they were hitting both their revenue and their operating income targets for the fiscal year. And if we look ahead in the US session, uh, Broadcom, Costco, Dell Technologies uh, could be worth uh, watching. I think Broadcom is a is a super interesting company. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about what is a quality company because quality companies will have some uh, quality characteristics during uh, during an inflationary period. And, and Broadcom definitely meets a lot of the criteria for a high quality company. And as you can see here in that quarterly financial snippet I've put in there on, on slide 10, very impressive numbers, still expected to grow. 
revenue almost 16% for the quarter that ended in January. And then from a consumer angle, I think Anheuser-Busch, it's a very stable brewery. It's all always very stable companies. So I, I, I don't think it's a very, um, I don't think it's a very sexy earnings release. But um, if you're into breweries and you're into stable companies with a very robust business model, even during inflation, then uh, this earnings release is something for you. Yeah, and for our American listeners, it'd be Anheuser-Busch, even though you're very correct in your German pronunciation there, Peter. Kudos, <laughs> kudos for that, Anheuser. Um, and also Anheuser. curious, <laughs> uh, also curious on this uh, Tesla. This whole Tesla looking forward with this this Tesla truck. Uh, to me, it is the most hideous vehicle I've ever seen in my life. I'm curious if that thing will sell. Maybe it will. Maybe it's just a, a uh, an aesthetic that uh, is is not for my audience. To me, it looks like somebody really just took an industrial kitchen and tossed it in some random uh, compactor and to to shape the vehicle. But let's let's see uh, if uh, if the rest of the market likes uh, Musk's sense of aesthetics on on that uh, vehicle. It's generated a lot of buzz, but let's see. Um, yeah, and then on the economic calendar, not a whole lot to discuss today. Plenty of items there. Another weekly claims data point from the U.S. is: Do we get yet another one below 200K? Will be the big, uh, the big question mark there. Some Fed speakers. I think the Fed is uh, sort of catching up and has a lot of catching up to do in terms of how it guides at the March meeting. Uh, sort of 25% probability of a 50 basis point move, which I think would be highly embarrassing for them to do this uh, this early. And 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 just having ha- having had decelerated to then have to reaccelerate, I think they'll try rather than do that to to uh, you know shape things via guidance, especially for the 2024 uh, dot plots, rather than uh, panicking so quickly. But you know, let's see. Kashkari also out speaking, and he's uh, you know trying to be King Hawk these days rather than King Dove, which he was uh, formerly for many years. The leading uh, Tokyo February CPI out of Japan overnight as well. And then the big one for the U.S. Uh, this week is that ISM services data point after the crazy back and forth, uh, a huge dip in December, and then the big resurgence to essentially unchanged uh, from the November level and, and the January print. So where does that February one print, does it show the kind of weakness we saw in the ISM manufacturing or does it show a resilient services side to the dominant side of the U S economy? Um, yeah, I think that is it for today. It's been a long one, hopefully a good one too. And we'll be back tomorrow with the last Saxon market call of the week. Thanks for listening. This has been the Saxo market call for feedback and questions. Reach out to us on Twitter at Saxo market call or by email, marketcall at saxobank.com. <laughs>